Uh, I'm going, I, I asked them to bring a, um, a board over this morning just to draw for you. Um, I got a D minus in art, so lower your expectations and hopefully you won't be too traumatized. But I just want to leave you a couple of timelines to ponder, to, th- to think about. This morning, I hope that this will be helpful. The lectionary for this week centers on the idea of us not being too attached to what we find under the sun, the experience that we have in our human lives, that we're not supposed to try to over-control what happens because the temptation is to exactly do that. Now, just as a sidebar, the lectionary is this schedule that has been developed, continues to be developed, where certain sections of scripture are assigned to days and times and seasons. This has actually been a practice carried over from Judaism in the ancient world and has been carried all through the church's history uh, in the synagogue and then in the churches since the church's beginning. I grew up in free churches where we didn't really embrace that, but it has been a joy to begin to embrace that and to know that millions of churches around the world are dealing with the same texts that we're dealing with this morning. And in a way, it gives a very practical way of us describing and declaring that we're in unity with one another in the community of the saints, so, so in the communion of saints, so I love that. Uh, if you Google the common lectionary, uh, you'll be able to find the one that we use and you can actually read ahead uh, in the course of the week, make it part of your uh, devotional life. Uh, the lectionary we cover uses central texts that cover the whole arc of, of the panoramic view of scripture over a period of about three years. And they call them year A, B, and C. We happen to be in year C, so FYI. There are readings from the Old Testament, there are readings from the New Testament epistles, there's readings from the Gospels, and sometimes the readings don't seem to jive together, but a lot of times they, they create this interesting knit of thought, and that happens to be the case for today. Um, let me start with the one from Ecclesiastes, because paired with this Gospel that uh, Father Paul read is out of Ecclesiastes, and listen to this text. Vanity of vanities, says the teacher, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. I, the teacher, when king over Israel in Jerusalem, applied my mind to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to human beings to be busy with. I saw all the deeds that are done under the sun and see all is vanity and chasing after the wind. I hated all my toll and that which I had told under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to those who come after me. And who knows whether they will be wise or foolish, yet they will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned and gave my heart up to despair concerning all the toil of my labors under the sun. I are because sometimes one who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave all to be enjoyed by another who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. Why do mortals get from all the toil, or what do mortals get from all the toil and strain with which they toil under the sun? For all their days are full of pain and their work is a vexation. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This also is vanity. (laughs) Pretty dark text. But actually, the book of Ecclesiastes has 
been coming to its own in our generation because so many people have this sense of despair as they toil under the sun. The word that the, the Hebrew word that's used here for vanity is havel, and it means vapor. It's, it's saying that life is a kind of vapor that, that comes quickly, that's hard to grasp, even though we spend most of our time trying to grasp it. Uh, this text ties in well with James 4, where James writes in the New Testament, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Now, it would be lovely to spend a lot of time ex expressing this, but I thought, I thought really to kind of give us, we tend to think of our life and of our lifetimes. Uh, we, we think of it as being fixed. We think of it as being forever here. I worked in hospice for 10 years, and one of the interesting comments that would come up again and again is that a lot of people who are dying will say this, I know everybody is going to die. I just didn't think it would happen to me. And there's something about our minds and the way that our psychology works and the way that we develop as human beings that we kind of think we have control and we kind of think that everything that's here is going to stay here, that we somehow, this is a permanent situation. So I wanted to draw a couple lines for you um, just to kind of give you a sense of, of how this works. And you know, if we draw a line, I don't know if you can even see this. See, my artwork is amazing. If you draw a line, we come to here, they say to us, Scientists say to us that from where we are now back to what you could call the Big Bang is about 14 billion years, okay, to here. Our solar system backs up about four billion years. And if they're right, and if the scriptures, when it says the sun turns to darkness, if that's referring to the sun actually burning out, we have about another five billion years, which puts us that this is about 20 billion years, okay? So if, if that's the case, and we wanted to take out for the sake of getting an image of this, a period of 200 years, it would be less than a dot, right? But let's do that. Let's take out a, let me get a different thing because it's not working very well. Let's take out a, a line and let's make this 200 years. We'll start in 1900 and will end in 2100, which is a tiny, tiny little piece of this 20 billion year thing that we have up here. If we go back here and we talk about people, so Mother Teresa, born in 1910, Mother Teresa lives, if we put about 2000 here, she lives to about here. She died in 1997, okay? So she covered that. Uh, Billy Graham, uh, 1919, and he lives to 19, or 2019, so about here. Almost 100 years old. The gal, Betty White just died. She was born in 20, or 1921, and she died in 2021. Okay. Ed Gunger, born in 1956. If I give myself an extra 30 years, which if that's the case, I retired too early, Father Paul. <laughs> that would make me, at 2021, uh, 96 years old. 
or excuse me, 2051. <laughs> Wait a minute. 2051, or 2052 rather, I would be 96 years old. Okay, so 2100, that's about 78 years from right now. Add that to your age and you'll know how old you'll be when in the year 2100, which isn't that far away. Little babies that you just had in the last year or two will be turning almost 80 in the year 2100. This is this tiny little 200 year span that all of us are in. By the time we had 2120 or 50, everybody on this planet will be gone and a whole bunch of new people will be here. Here's the point. What is your life? It's a vapor. It's here for a little while, then it vanishes away. We are here for a couple of blinks of an eye. Now, the psalmist says in Psalm 90, 12, so teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. It's a delusion to think that you and I are here permanently. We're not. In fact, regarding our lives under the sun, that Ecclesiastes talks about the vanity of, the vaporness of it, Peter calls us foreigners and exiles. This isn't really our home. The text says in Ecclesiastes that, and, and, and when it describes our death, this is Ecclesiastes 12 and seven, says then dust, talking about our bodies, will return to the earth as it was, and our spirit, the spirit, will return to God who gave it. So where we'll be for the most part of eternity is not here. It's actually somehow in God. Ecclesiastes nudges us to recognize that while we are in the human experience, we should not get too caught up with what's just under the sun. That, and if we do, whether we have great success or whether we have great failure, life will still end up being meaningless. There'll still be a vanity to it, a vaporness to it. And then when we turn to the New Testament text from the lectionary, it's found in Colossians for this morning, Paul writes this. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Don't just be caught up with what's under the sun. Set your minds on things that are above, not just the things that are on the earth or under the sun. For you have died. Hmm. It's talking about a death before death. And your life is hidden with Christ in God, our true life. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. What Paul is saying is that human beings have the opportunity to experience more than just what is under the sun. That we can taste the eternal while we're in this world under the sun. And, and somehow, this is the, at the heart of our prayer that we pray every time we gather, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're asking for the influence of God to come into our lives, that we're not just living under the influence of what's here under the sun, where we're grasping to control everything. That, that somehow that, that our, uh, we allow the meaningfulness of God 
to swallow the meaninglessness of thinking that we're controlling the world or our lives, that our grounding in God replaces the sense of being vapor. This acknowledges that life under the sun is limited and pale when you're doing it by yourself. There's a great Psalm, Psalm 63, that sort of captures this. The psalmist writes, oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh longs for you, why? Because I'm in a place, I'm in a dry and thirsty land, I'm in this place under the sun where there's no real water, not the kind of water that I need. So I have looked to you, for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory because your loving kindness is better than life, better than life under the sun. My lips shall praise you, thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul shall be satisfied, will find meaning, substance as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. See, eternity seems pale to many folks because they've never turned to God seriously. And, and really, this is, this is because of our psychological development. I mean, um, psychologists tell us, let me draw my last line here, and let, this is the human experience here, and let's call this birth and before, and we'll call this our death. Okay, so psychologists tell us that somehow when children, infants come into the world, and those of you that have brought children into the world and have them, you'll know this, there's a kind of way that infants have an undifferentiation. They, are, they come into the world, but there's no sense, even though it's not cognitive, but there's no sense that they're separate from the world and they're in. They're one with their mother, one with their father, one with their surroundings. There's this undifferentiation. And in a way, whether they realize it or not, there's some connection to what's beyond the eternal here. They've been spoken into being by God. The scripture says, Christian theology holds, that when a baby comes into the womb, the parents may provide the cells for reproduction, but God is the father of spirits. In other words, God fathers the spirit. Somewhere in the process, the baby in utero is spirited by God. We don't know what part that is, but at some point, this is why some, so many are saying life is precious in the womb, right? Because this notion that God is the father of spirits. So somehow there's this connection with this infant with God and connection with this infant with the whole surroundings that's undifferentiated. But within the first few weeks, certainly the first few months, this differentiation begins. The child begins to understand this idea and it's the first differentiation, me, not me. This sense that Okay, there's that person and it's different than me or they start discovering their hands or they start you know, realizing that they're, that they're different. As that emerges, there's another, that's the first, what's called a dualism. Me, not me, very important for it to happen. It gives a person a sense of individuation, but it also opens up the door for alienation. And then as, you, as a child begins to mature, it ends up having a second thing that happens, as that is it begins to understand this notion of space, that I can be here and you, 
you're there. And when you start talking about space, what else are you talking about? Space and time. And it's this notion of before, now, after starts emerging. And these two dualism, space and time, this notion of me, not me, begins to individuate a little kid. And they start realizing they're different. They're separate. Sometimes a little kid will move away from you to get their own space or pull back from something you're trying to give them, like medicine or whatever. There's this sense that they're starting to take control of their lives. Very natural, very important. It's later that somewhere in late childhood or, or uh, early adolescence that they develop a third dualism, and that is this notion of mind and body. And when you have this, what happens is that a little young child will say, I hurt here, I hurt here, I hurt here. When you start getting older as a child, they'll say, my leg hurts there. They moved a few blocks from their body, right? These developmental things create, psychologists tell us, the ego. And when the ego develops in the self, it begins to lose its grounding in others, lose its grounding certainly in the eternal, and begins to individuate and individuate and individuate and becomes eventually almost as if the whole world is made from the construction of their own mind. This egocentric thing is who most of us think we are, but it's not. <laughs> it's our illusion of who we are because we're still grounded in God and when we die, we go back to God. But the senses were in control. And it's this that the Ecclesiastes talks about. It's this that the scriptures talk about. Don't live under the sun as if you're controlling it all with your egoic sense. That when you do that, you think, I am what I do. I am what I have. I am how people respond to me. You start controlling the whole of your life in your head. And this becomes a kind of alienation, and it also funds the sinful nature. And when Jesus comes to be human, he's going through this sense of individuation, but he never loses his sense of connection with the Father. There's always this sense that he's one with God the Father. Even as a child, he's speaking about, it must be about my father's business. There's this sense that he never got individuated to the point of alienation, something he never experienced until the cross. This, it, 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 this kind of ego-centered existence is the thing that lives under the sun. It is the thing that makes life vacant vapor. The call of the gospel is to not let the egoic, isolated self dominate your life. This is what, what is at the heart of the notion that we must die to self. It's the egoic self that individuates itself from everyone else, everything else, even God, that must die. 
This is Jesus' comment in Matthew 16. He said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come to me, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. Whoever desires to save his life, be in control of what's under the sun, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it for a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? This death could be called the path of return. If somewhere along the way, now everybody's gonna die, and when they die, they have some of what's going on here. But anywhere along the line, if you have an encounter or an openness to God, you're actually returning. It becomes a path to life for you. We return to our sense of the undifferentiated unity that we had, that our grounding is in eternity. Somehow, we start to transcend the me, not me, chasm. And we start to realize, no, there's an us. The whole space-time thing is sort of dissolved by the fact that it's transcended by the eternal, that God is not just now in the past or in the future, but God transcends time. And then we start this soul-body dualism. We discover that God fills all things and that our bodies are actually the temples of the Holy Spirit. And so there's some way in which God fills it all and we don't have to disassociate. This is at the heart of what repentance is. It's giving your ego a crisis. And it's at the core of what we mean when we say people need to do soul work. You need to do soul work. You need to quit letting yourself think that your whole world's being totally controlled by a few inches in the front of your head or inside the front of your head. When you're living in that path of return, that's when you can easily begin to fulfill the calls of the gospel, like the text we have today. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. Say, I gotta control this, I need to grab what I can grab. I'm under the sun, I need to make sure my life is okay. Full of fear, full of control, full of trying to get a handle on it, this thing called life. But he said to him, friend who sent me as a judge or arbitrator over you, he said, take care, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of stuff. In other words, you are not what you have. Oh my, this just freaks your ego out. Because when you're all differentiated inside and all individuated inside, it is absolutely what you have. And I'm gonna try to get more. Then he told him a parable about this Rich men produced abundantly, and he thought to himself, what will I do? I have no place to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll, I'll pull down my barns, build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. <laughs> What's he doing? Vanity. Just wasting. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, this, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded of you, and the things you prepared... Whose will they be? That echoes Ecclesiastes. So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves but are not rich toward God. People who forget their lives aren't their own. They're really here for a very short time. Your life's a vapor. And you belong to God. This is a snapshot of living under the sun, life under the sun. What you look like when you're trying to control everything. You will stumble into this if you don't do soul work. 
Jesus is calling us to understand that life is more than what you do. Life is more than what you have. Life is more than what people say about you and how you control that narrative. Life is vapor. Do the soul work by returning to your ground, groundedness in eternity. You won't be so thrown by things going up and down. You won't freak out if you're well or you're sick or you're rich or you're poor. There's something that transcends all that. I mean, obviously everybody wants to have a life that isn't full of trouble, but our lives aren't defined by good or trouble. Our lives are defined by not who we are, but whose we are. You are beloved. At the horizon of creation, however many billion years ago that was, God saw you, particularly On the cross, the scripture tells us, Jesus saw us for the joy set before him. He endured the cross. Somehow he saw you, he saw me. The text says God has engraved us in his hands. I mean, tattooing you on his hand, he's got a big hand. Tattooing you on his hand, on God's hand, is like, he must really like you. (laughs) What if I came here and you saw Gail? (laughs) He must really like her. (laughs) He could tattooed on your hand. When you know God loves you and you know that you're not an accident, that you are a dream come true by God, it starts starts to break down your controlling egoic self. This is how you carry your cross, the embracing of life that's eternal. Or God will still love you. You don't have to do it. You will do it as you approach your death. I mean, there's going to be a day when you hear the doctor say to you, there's nothing more we can do. You need to get your house in order. And in those moments, when you talk to people who have those moments, the me, not me dualism, it just isn't even real. (laughs) Somehow you, what's going on with you, the facing of your end, makes you realize this was all just a puff an abstraction. The space-time dualism will be irrelevant because death eliminates past and present and future. And the soul-body dualism, that'll cease because your body goes to dust, your spirit goes to God. You will do this, what we're talking about here, what the gospel says. You will. The question is, is when? If you do it before you die, or face death in tangible reality, your life will be less vaporish. It'll have less suck. (laughs) Life under the sun comes with an expiration date. So hence, Paul urges us, set your minds on things that are above and not just on things that are under the sun or on earth. That is what it means to be Christian.